morning. Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> you know, every year, each of us relives the day of our birth. We celebrate it, call it our birthday, marks that uh, anniversary. You ever had that thought that every year you also pass by the date of your death and you don't know it? You've already lived that date 20 times, 30 times, 60 times. You've passed that date before. And it might just be like any other day to you now, but death is coming. And Ecclesiastes repeatedly reminds us of this. And the point is not to be morbid. The point is to get wisdom. We've been seeing that as we're journeying through this book. You have a few unpredictable days under the sun. And then very predictably, death ends those few days. So what should you do with the few days that you have? What do you do with them? Let's give our attention to Act, uh, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 8, 16. We'll read through chapter 9, verse 12. And as we go to God's word, it's our conviction that God comes to us. He asserts himself to us through his word. This is his word. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It's the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of envy, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their, their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life 
with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor Riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Father, we ask you for help. As we do week after week, help us, Lord. To not simply hear your word, but to hear it and receive it and believe it and obey it and do it. We want to be doers of your word, and so we receive it with joy. This is your word. Help us by your spirit to understand it, to trust it, and to live it for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So, if life ever seems perplexing to you, if it ever seems unpredictable to you, then you found a lot to relate to with the preacher as we work our way through Ecclesiastes, right? He, he, again, he's looking out at everything that happens under the, under the sun, and he's acknowledging, I can't make sense of it. And the question, the, the much deeper, more perplexing, maybe even disturbing question for believers, that is for those who hold by faith to the sovereignty of God, the, the question is really, really important. Why do God's ways on earth seem so confusing to us who trust Him? Why do the ways of God seem so mysterious and, and even terrifying to the point that sometimes in life we just even wonder, is God actually for me? Does God love me or does God hate me? What is he doing on earth? What is he doing in my life? The preacher told us his quest back at the outset of this book in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. That's what he's trying to figure out in this entire quest. What is going on on earth? What's going on in all of the comings and goings, the ins and the outs, the ups and the downs of man's toil? And what is God doing in all of this? What exactly is happening here? It is an unhappy business, he said back in chapter 1, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And here in chapter 8, verse 16, he, he reports his findings. He, he gives a kind of conclusion, if, if any conclusions are given in this book, he says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw, I saw, this is Solomon's eureka, I, I saw all the work of God, what is it? That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. And if you meet some wise guy who tells you he has it figured out, he doesn't because he can't. 
There you go. That's the work of God. Discovered. Solomon repeats this three times. You cannot, indeed, you will not figure out what God is up to by watching history unfold on earth. But it's important to know as we look at this text that this is not like a kid throwing down his pencil, crumpling up his homework assignment in exasperation and quitting because he's been stuck on the same problem for 72 hours. This is not Solomon just saying, that's it, I quit, I can't do it. He's not descending into some absolute futility. That would be irrational, that kind of statement. I know for sure that no one can know anything about anything at all. He's not landing there. And this is not agnosticism, which says, well, maybe there's a God, but who knows? If there is, we, we can't know anything about him. We can't know anything about what he's like. I mean, even to say that is to know something about God, namely that he's an unknowable God. So that alone is a truth claim about God. This is not paganism, like we see through the, the Greeks and the, the Romans and the Norse gods, where the deities are just capricious. They are moody and volatile and The reason we can't figure out what they're up to is just because they are so emotional and dysfunctional in their own divine families that they're just constantly at war with themselves and we just get the shrapnel of all of it and who knows what's going on. Nobody can untangle that mess. That's not where Solomon is landing. He he sees something. He says in verse 16, when I applied my heart, then I saw the work of God. He arrives at one of wisdom's most precious revelations. God is at work on earth, under the sun. And it's not for us to know. Even the wisest of us, it's not for us to comprehend or explain or analyze or critique God's ways. The reason that man cannot find out the work of God is not because God is a madman acting in some irrational and chaotic ways without rhyme or reason. Doug Wilson says in his book, Joy at the End of the Tether, as we consider what passes before us, we cannot make sense of it. We tend to assume, echoing Shakespeare, that line from Macbeth, that the history of all things is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. (laughs) But Solomon says, rather, it's a tale told to idiots. And he says in verse 3 of chapter 9, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. So it's, it's not because God has no purpose that we can't figure out what he's doing. It's because of God's purpose. And we've, we've seen this already as we trek with him on this quest in chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he's put eternity into man's heart so that... Man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has done it in such a way that we can't know. It's on purpose. God has ordained these limits to our knowledge. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 14. In the day of prosperity, do what? Be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other so that you may not find out anything that will be after you. God has set limits. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to God. There are revealed things God has given us so that we can know him and walk in his ways. And then there are secret things. And they belong to God and not to us. He hasn't shared them with us because he doesn't mean to. And so it's true that life is unpredictable. 
Life is unpredictable. Your life is unpredictable. If you haven't seen that yet, you will. Zach Eswine in his book, uh, Recovering Eden, he, he says, it's, you ever had this experience where you're, you're sitting there watching a movie and at every twist in the plot, somebody watching with you says, why'd they do that? What, what, what's going to happen? What, what, what comes next? And you just go, shh, just, we're all watching it together. We don't know yet. We're watching a movie. I didn't write it. I'm not sure. Just, just watch. I'm sure we'll figure it out as it goes. Do you live life that way? Okay, what comes next? What happens now? Why did you do that, God? We're like that person watching the movie, talking through the whole thing. And, and if you're not careful, all of your talking about what you think might come next will cause you to miss the thing you needed to know to figure it out. It takes some contentment to let the story unfold. Life is like a tapestry. Uh, th- this has been such a helpful image in my mind for years that the unfolding of my life is like a woven tapestry where from one side there really is a beautiful artistic scene woven with all these colors and threads. You ever seen the back side of a tapestry? All the colors are there, all the same threads are there, except that's where they're passing to the next place they need to be, and it's just a mess. If you look at the backside, it looks like chaos. And the reality is, that's how God has made life for us, that we live life under the sun from the backside of the tapestry. Does that make sense? Corey Tembum wrote a poem about that. It goes like this. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. This means that the circumstances of your life cannot tell you. They don't tell you whether God loves you or hates you. They don't tell you whether God is for you or against you. And yet, ever since the garden, since the serpent put that seed of doubt in Adam's ear and Eve's ear, does God really love you? Does God, is God really for you? Isn't he holding out on you? Every one of us is susceptible to that pernicious lie. And Solomon says in 9 verse 1, the righteous and the wise and their deeds, they are in the hand of God. To be in God's hand is to be under his sovereign care. In all of scripture, you are in his hand. And whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know. Does God love me or hate me? You can't tell by looking at the circumstances of your life. And so don't. Because as verse 11 says, time and chance happen to us all. That is chance, not that it's left to random, mindless chance, but this is a a word for misfortune, adversity, in unhappy 
turn of events. This is what Solomon calls elsewhere the day of adversity, the day of darkness, evil days. Pain and suffering comes. In verse 12 he says man doesn't know his time. And so the days of our lives are unpredictable. And then predictably death comes. And death is the thing that Solomon laments here. He says over and over, this is that same event that happens to all of us. We're going to die. No matter what we do, we're all going to die. And so, once again, we're left with this question. What should we do with these days? They're unpredictable. That's true. Death is coming. That's true. What should you be doing today, then? I'm going to sum up main point of this chapter like this. You should learn to receive every moment and every rhythm of life as a gift. You should learn to receive the day. Receive the day. That, that should be the paradigm for how you live life. Look at verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. It might sound like Solomon is being repetitive here. It kind of is. But he is repeating this conclusion to add layers, to add depth to take us deeper into understanding how to live our lives under the sun. He's building a deeper, stronger, more robust argument for you by taking his conclusion and pressing it into all the corners of life. We've heard this advice at other points in this book where he says things like, so I consider there's nothing better than to eat and drink and have joy. In those places, he's saying things like, there's, there's nothing better. This is, this is the best thing there is. But here, when we get to chapter 9, verses 7 through 10, his argument builds, it, it crescendos, and he shifts to giving us commands. He's not just saying, so I consider there's nothing better. He says, go, go out from here. This is a, a commission. Go eat, go drink, go work, because God has already approved what you do. So, all of the commentators who write on Ecclesiastes, they call these repeated passages, they call them the carpe diem passages. That's the term commentators have settled on for these passages. Seize the day. But I think seize the day implies a kind of force and grabbing of the day that's not present in Ecclesiastes. I think that idolatrously grabbing God's gifts under the sun, is the sinful root of all of our unhappiness anyway, all the way back to Eden. And so instead of seizing the day, Ecclesiastes is calling you to receive the day. I love that wording. Get that from an author named Dorothy Bass. Receive the day. Receive it. That that gives you a paradigm for thinking about every single moment of your life, all of the pains, all of the pleasures, all of the minutes. What should you be doing? receiving like a gift. The day's not yours to seize or grasp or hoard. The days, the the moments, the meals, the relationships, the the work, it's it's all a gift to you. It is all gift. Verse 9, God has given you 
I love the author's wording. All the days of your vain life. (laughs) All the days of your silly little life. God gave them to you. It's a gift. Receive it. This is your portion. He gave it to you. He loves you. So what do you do with the gift? If you have that paradigm, you know how to live in every moment of life. That's wisdom. Wisdom tells you how to live, and this wisdom unlocks every moment. What should you be doing? Receiving it, unwrapping it, opening it up. What do you do with the gift? You give thanks to the one who gave it to you. So give thanks, and then what do you do with it after you thank them? You don't set it on a shelf if it's a valuable, well-given gift by somebody who knows you. You, you use it. You enjoy it. You delight in it. You receive it, you unwrap it, you give thanks to the giver, you use it. That's your paradigm for life in every one of your few unpredictable days until death comes. So, in some sense, aren't we all doing these things already? When the preacher says, go eat, go drink, go work, go enjoy your wife. I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to be eating and drinking and working and getting married, right? People are doing this already. So is this actually giving us any kind of insight? Or is it just kind of like, hey, carry on. Nobody knows what's going on here anyway. Just keep doing what you're doing. Business as usual. No, I I think what the preacher's saying to us, he's helping us see how to relate to God's gifts. It's not whether you're going to eat and drink and get married and go to work. It's how you're going to do those things. That's his point. Verse 7, eat your bread. He doesn't just say, go eat your bread, period. He says, so go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine, how? With a merry heart. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. But don't just do it. Do it with your might. So, yes, in one sense, all people are using God's gifts already. People are using God's gifts in different ways. There are hedonists who look at the brevity of life and they conclude, might as well just indulge all I can and feel all the pleasure I can. And so they pass through this world like like pirates, looting, pillaging, hoarding, taking. I mean, hey, must not be any God above to ever stop me. Get away with it if I can. And then there are others who turn pessimistic. And I think a lot of Christians fall into this kind of category. They're they're, they're not pirates on that ship, pillaging and looting. They just see themselves like victims on the Titanic. We're just sinking, and it doesn't matter. None of this matters at all. So so that idea that the, the made stuff of this world doesn't matter is not biblical. Actually, God's word redeems for us all of life, including the eating and the drinking and the working and the lovemaking. All of it's redeemed by God. And so don't be like the pillaging pirates and don't be like the people running around the deck of the Titanic saying, we're just going to die and it doesn't matter anyway. Christians receive the day like guests at a wedding banquet, knowing I was invited. I didn't choose. This was not my decision. I am here because somebody else invited me here. And I am an honored guest, and I'm just blessed to be here. And so the distinguishing mark of the Christian is this kind of joyful, energetic gratitude. Again, from Wilson, he says, when 
when men understand the futility of earthly existence, and they understand it in the way that Solomon presents it to us, they are then equipped to enjoy their bread for perhaps the first time. I mean, we've all been eating all our lives, but this might be the first time you ever actually enjoy it the way you were meant to. They may consider the redness of the wine and laugh over it with a wise and contented joy. They may turn to love their wives, not because sexual love is forever, but rather precisely because it's not. It's a gift for a moment. And in the world of creatures, we may only enjoy what we do not worship. That's wisdom. You may only enjoy these things if you don't worship them. So where does this joy come from that's supposed to characterize all of life down to the daily rhythms? Give verse 7 again. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Here's the grounds for the joy. The grounds for the merry heart. The, the merry heart is not just that the, the wine made your heart merry. The merry heart is this, because God has already approved what you do. Literally, God has already taken delight in. God is already pleased with all of your working. So, so your joy, as you receive the day and every gift God gives, your joy comes from the fact that God is pleased with you. That's what the word approved here means. It means God accepts you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. He's favorable toward you. It's the same word that's used in Leviticus 1 to speak of God accepting an offering. And Leviticus outlines the offerings that God accepts and the offerings God does not accept. It's used in Psalms to say the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and hope in his mercy. And in Proverbs, it's the word that's used to say God disciplines his people, like a father, disciplines the son in whom he delights. God delights in you. This is the language of justification. To, to have God's approval. To have God pleased with you. So, it's not carte blanche, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God approves of everyone everywhere and all that they do. The author in Ecclesiastes even differentiates in chapter 2 between those who are right in God's sight and the sinner. So there are two categories. He's speaking specifically to those who are in right standing with God. And he says, your right standing with God is the basis for all of your joy in every other part of your life. Your justification comes out your fingertips. You express your, your justification with your taste buds. When you eat and when you drink, it comes out in the rest of your life. So how can you have this right standing with God? The, the doctrine of justification is not explicitly taught like we see it in the New Testament here in Ecclesiastes 9, but it's, it's implied. It's, it's hinted at here. There are whispers of it running through all of Scripture, including the book of Ecclesiastes. It's implied in how the preacher denies that you can do anything at all to control God. But chapter 9, verse 2 is maddening to people who trust in their own religious performance. If, if you're a legalist, chapter 9, verse 2 would drive you crazy. 
Anyone who wants to earn something from God rather than receive anything from him, it says the same events happen, the same event, death, happens to the righteous and the wicked. Clear contrast, right? The good and the evil. Same contrast to the clean and the unclean. That's ceremonially clean, ceremonially unclean by the laws of Leviticus. To the one who sacrifices and offers all the sacrifices you're supposed to offer in Leviticus and to the one who doesn't, you all die. And as the good one is, so is the sinner. The one who swears and keeps his word and the one who doesn't, who shuns an oath. So all of your religious performance, you you can't manipulate or control God. People who want to live that way, it drives them crazy when calamity strikes because they say, I I went to church like you asked, I read the Bible like you said, I prayed, and this is how you treat me? I deserve something more from you than this. So you could try religion, you could try physical prowess, you could try intellectual genius, but verse 12 says, under the sun, the race isn't to the swift and the strong, not to the wise and the intelligent and the knowledgeable. Time and chance happens to them all. So you have to forsake any inclination to work for God. This is how to be approved by God, not by your doing. It's not by anything you gift to him or do for him that puts him in your debt. Instead, you have to humbly rely on him to do the working for you. So this is the message of the Bible from beginning to end, emphasizing that only those who do not work for God but rely on God to work for them, only those people are counted righteous. Paul says that in Romans 4, 4 through 5, when he's pointing back to Abraham, the faith of Abraham, by which Abraham was counted righteous before God. And Paul writes, now to the one who works, if you think you're doing some work for God, providing some service to him, then your wages would not be counted as a gift, but as your due. They're owed to you. But to the one who does not work, but simply believes, simply trusts in God who justifies the ungodly, that's who our God is, the God who justifies the ungodly. And he does it to ungodly ones who believe in him. To the one who does not work but believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. What Ecclesiastes whispers, the New Testament shouts at us. This is how to be approved by God, but, it, but it's here. Your approval by God is the foundation for all of your living. And so receiving the day means letting go of that desire we all feel from time to time, or maybe minute to minute, to counsel God, to offer God advice. You ever pray that way? Our praying just becomes, God, I really think you should do this, or why did you let that happen? You shouldn't have. Romans 11.34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? You can't tell what God is up to by looking at all the events unfolding on earth. You don't know and he doesn't need you to counsel him. That's not your place. When you trust God like this, you can let go of the desire to earn anything from God. Paul says in Romans 11.35, who has ever given a gift to God that he might be repaid by God. He doesn't need your advice, and you can't meet any needs in him. It would be blasphemous for us to try to meet needs in God. God's the giver. You're the recipient. God is the benefactor, and you're the beneficiary, and all of this world is gift. All of it. The days, the the fleeting moments, gift. The food and the flavors, 
marriage and sex and parenthood. Just gift. It's all gift. The work is a gift. The, the toil is a gift. The, the art and the creativity and the productivity, it's all gift and it's all mercy. I mean, can you think about how merciful God is that while Solomon can look at death and say, this is a great evil. I mean, this is a result of man's sin, the fall, that we all die. And yet, think about how kind God is, that all of these things Solomon walks through, these were gifts that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. Adam sinned in the most grievous way. He plunged all of humanity into guilt. And God didn't strike him dead in that moment. God made clothes for him. And he let him keep enjoying the taste and the sight and the smell of food. And he let him continue enjoying life with the wife he loved. All those good things God gave them in the garden, he allows us to continue enjoying by his mercy. And so Paul can declare when he considers that we can't figure out the ways of God, he just ends in praise. Paul says, how unsearchable are God's judgments, how inscrutable his ways, the, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So when, when you get that, when, you're, when you have that right standing with God, that transforms the daily rhythms of life. That's what Solomon is showing us here, that, that even down to the way you eat and drink changes when you receive the day. Eat with joy, drink with a merry heart. I mean, eating and drinking matter, but not in the way that our culture thinks. So many people are so obsessed. Humans have been sinning with food from the garden, right? That was the first sin. And ever since then, it's so tempting to see food as a way to manipulate, control the future, get right standing with God, feel better about ourselves because we do eat these things and don't eat those things. Whatever your diet is, just eat like a Christian. If you like a certain diet, great. But eat like a Christian if you're going to have a certain diet. Right? Don't, don't eat like someone who's trying to manipulate God or earn points with him. Don't eat like somebody who's trying to control the future and live forever. Eat like someone who knows God is pleased with you already, not because you eat this or don't eat that. That's how to eat like one who's receiving everything as a gift. Solomon says, let your physical appearance, let your personal hygiene even reflect the fact that you receive it all as a gift. Now, this is worth thinking about. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking for your head. White garments, they're clean. They're, they're bright. They're probably garments worn in some kind of celebration. In a hot climate, oil would be like a, a moisturizer for dry skin. According to Isaiah, when the Messiah came, what would he give to people? He'd bring good news and he would give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So if we see somebody dressed up, we might ask, What's the occasion? We can tell there's an occasion because you're dressed a certain way. Clothing communicates. You might get dressed up for a, a wedding or a job interview. And Solomon says, let your garments always be white. Let oil never be lacking. Take care of yourself like you have an occasion to get up for in the morning. I mean, when people are depressed, when people are grieving, when there's some kind of inner turmoil usually one of the first things that starts to subtly go is taking care of their outward appearance. But when joy 
is, in, is rooted in your heart because God has already delighted in you, approved of you, and all that you do, you have a reason. You're not like somebody on the Titanic saying, it's just going down, who cares, it doesn't matter. Every day, is it a fleeting day? Yes, so get up and get dressed anyway. Get up like somebody who's received a gift from God. The, the point here isn't to tell you what style of clothing to wear or not wear. The, the point is that discipleship to Jesus comes out in everything, and so it's worth thinking about. Our appearance, am I saying, am I communicating, this day is a gift, and I receive it with joy. It matters. It's a vapor, and it matters. Solomon says the way you treat your spouse changes when you receive the day. And that that just makes me ask questions like, when my wife and kids say that my joy fills the home like a, a fragrant, sweet fragrance, or, or does my discontentment or my displeasure stink up the place? Where the people I live with say my life is marked by joy, like somebody who knows I've been approved by God, my God delights in me, and he's given me gifts that I don't even deserve. Do you merely share the same last name and the same address, or do you share the joys of life together? I mean, this just means when I say to you, go receive the day, it doesn't mean just go off and have a super spiritual quiet time. It means go do something with your wife and kids, go eat a meal, go get dressed up and enjoy a fancy meal. Our, our delight in God comes out in these. Ways It comes out when you get up and go to work tomorrow. These are the things Solomon keeps repeating throughout the book, and hopefully we get it and receive it by, by faith, that no matter how we feel, whether we feel like this joy or not, no matter how we feel, we are commissioned to go preach to our hearts. Receive it. It's a gift. Rejoice. He loves you. Preach that to yourself. And if you... If you see in any of those areas of your everyday life, if you see ingratitude anywhere, my guess is it's somewhere. It might be different for each of us, but where you see ingratitude in your life, where you look at the daily rhythms of your life and you see that, you know, I haven't received that. I don't think I've ever thanked God for that thing. There's hope for you. Solomon says in verse 4, the one who's joined with all the living has hope. Why? Because even a living dog, and dogs were dirty scavengers in Israel, uh, Jewish culture, even a living dog is better than a dead lion. Because the living know that they're going to die. When you're dead, it's over. It's destined for man to die once and then face judgment. But if you're still alive, that means there's still hope for you. No matter what mistakes you've made in the past, you can today receive by faith God's approval of you in the person of Jesus Christ. You can confess that ingratitude to God as sin. You can receive by faith his forgiveness of you. And you can look to Jesus who bought for you by his blood not only the forgiveness of your sins, but the enjoyment of every other pleasure and the redemption of every other pain in your life. He bought that for you. And you don't have to wait to figure out you're going to die and that there's wisdom there. 
me give you a picture of what receiving the day looks like as we close. This comes from Zach Eswine and a conversation he had with his 80-something-year-old grandpa on the phone one day. His grandpa and his grandma were in their early to mid-80s. They had gone fishing that day. And Zach was talking with his grandpa on the phone and asked him how he was doing. He said, we're alive, so it's a good day. And Zach chuckled and his grandpa went on to clarify. He said, Zach, when your grandmother and I wake up, we give thanks to God. Because at our age, waking up is not a promise. And then, if we have strength to do whatever we had planned to do that day, we give thanks to God that we have the strength to do it. Because at our age, strength and health comes and goes. And if we get a nap in and we wake up, we give thanks. And if it's dinner time and we're sitting down to eat, we give thanks. Not only for our food, but also that we can eat it. We can still chew it. And we made it through the day that far. And after that, we go to bed at night and we look at each other and then we look back on the day and, and we thank God again for another day that he gave us to live. So today we went fishing. And what do you know? We caught all these fish. The good Lord must still have a purpose for us. You don't have to wait till you're 80-something to live with that kind of mindset. Because as Ecclesiastes is repeatedly reminding us, we're going to die. We're going to die, and we can recognize that today and live with hope today. So celebrate and lament and work and serve and eat and recreate and do it all like people who are receiving the day as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Thank you. Father, those words feel inadequate, but they're the right words. Thank you. Thank you for giving your son for us, your righteous son, your pure, spotless son, sacrifice for our sin so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be approved and accepted by you. And then, not only that, but on top of it, receive all of these gifts from you. Help us in our receiving of these gifts to be a witness to your goodness. We, we look at our friends who don't know you and we, we see that you really are a God who is kind to the evil and the ungrateful. I pray that they would see in us what Godward gratitude looks like. Lord, make the people of Emmaus Road Church a, a witness in our gratitude. Make our joy in you full in all of our unpredictable days. Secure our confidence, O oh God, in your approval of us when we are tempted to look at our circumstances and try to divine from those things whether you love us or hate us, whether you're for us or against us. Secure our confidence in Jesus, his righteous life and his substitutionary death and his resurrection from the dead.
Secure the joy of our hearts in all these daily rhythms for your glory and for our good and for the salvation of all those in this city who don't yet know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.